Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our monthly time with State Senator Joe Comerford. Senator, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. I would love for you to bring us up to date on a matter that is of, I think, extreme importance and interest to our listeners, and that is what the Massachusetts legislature has done and will be doing with regard to the Supreme Court's decision that overturned Roe versus Wade and decided that the constitutional right to abortion was no longer a right. The legislature has taken action. There's been a bill in the Senate, a bill in the pa- in the House. They both passed, but they are different. So tell us what is apt to happen next, and perhaps you could clarify for us what the differences in the legislation, what the differences are. Sure. Um, Good morning, Bill, and thank you so much for having me on. Uh, So, as you say, there are a number of different proposals out there. So when the Dobbs, news of the Dobbs case hit, the Senate was about to do our fiscal year 23 budget. So within that budget, we did a couple of things, uh, including protecting the rights of patients and protecting the rights of providers here in the Commonwealth against any action in states where abortion is no longer legal. And we did this for um, abortion care, and we also did it for gender-affirming care. And as you know well, Bill, that is under attack as well in many states in the nation. Um, So we did that, and uh, our House colleagues then passed a standalone bill. And so we wanted to meet that bill. that piece of legislation. And so we, last week, we passed uh, basically an expansion of the Roe Act, which is what we passed in 2020, as you know, enshrining the right to abortion care in the Commonwealth um, as a matter of law. And uh, so we expanded, the Senate expanded upon that. So again, we did these same provisions where we protected the rights of patients and the rights of doctors from any kind of legal action um, from states where abortion or gender-affirming care is not possible or not legal. Um, And we did a bunch more things. We uh, took away co-pays and deductibles um, for abortion care, both with MassHealth and with um, insurance that is, you know, that are carriers within the state. We also did a standing order Um, for emergency contraception uh, at pharmacies. So there is a standing order now, meaning people can go get emergency contraception. Um, And then we passed a number of other amendments uh, that I was uh, proud to be part of to that. Um, We passed uh, an amendment. It was amendment number 29 during the debate. And this amendment went back to the provisions of the Roe Act, remember we passed this, it's law, Uh, Governor Baker vetoed it, he seems to forget that he vetoed it, but anyway, he did veto it, and we overrode him, both the House and the Senate. Um, So we went back to a section called 12N within the Roe Act, and we said, hey, in case you're not understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about, in this case, late-term abortions, because that's been a, a matter of some serious concern, here's what we meant. And we locked down the meaning in 12N and made sure that it was very clear that the the right and health of the mom and the determination 
of the healthcare provider were central um, in determining um, whether or not an abortion could be performed within the stipulations of 12N, um, which are basically stipulated about the mental and physical health of um, the mom, uh, the uh, whether there was a fatal fetal anomaly uh, present in the fetus, um, and a number of other provisions. So we did that. Um, and then at the same time, the Senate president appointed a working group in the Senate to really look at what else can and must be done uh, to in the maternal health space. And she asked me if I would co-chair that, co-lead that with Senator Cindy Friedman, who's a great friend, um, I'm proud to say, in the Senate. She's the healthcare financing chair. I'm the public health chair. So we're going to dig in. And my particular interest in this, in addition to abortion care, which is, of course, something I, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud to support, is racial maternal health equity. Because you may remember, Bill, that I chaired a commission, the Maternal Inequities Commission, and we found unbelievable disparities in maternal health along race and ethnicity lines. And it is a shame if we do not take very concrete steps uh, to change that. So I'm going to be participating in that commission, helping to lead it, that working group. But I'm going to be focusing myself personally on racial maternal health equity, uh, both with regard to abortion access, but also with regard to maternal um, and infant health. I would like to spend some more time on the question of equity, but I would like to also go back to something you were talking about, which was Governor Baker's veto. And it, and it, and it concerns me uh, in, in this regard. There's a difference between the House bill and the Senate bill. And as I understand it, that means that the bills now go to a conference committee of three, three senators, three members of the House of Representatives, they will come out with a bill. There will then be an up or down vote in both chambers. And the governor will then have the opportunity to uh, veto the bill or line item veto the bill. And I would appreciate it if you would tell us what the differences are between the bills, how you see them being reconciled, and whether there's enough time to uh, overcome a, a veto by Governor Baker should he veto it, although he says he is, you know, he's pro-choice and he's looking forward to the bill being on his desk. So I'm not quite sure what that means. Anyway, help us understand this, please. You cut out just for a second, and sorry about that. Um, but I, I think you're wanting to know about the the, the conference process. So I want to know about the conference. I want to know about the yeah. process, and and is there time, yeah. and what are the differences? There is time. Uh, this is this this is this period within the legislative calendar where it's like the Super Bowl and the World Cup and the NBA playoffs uh, and every other darn big thing all at once. And so uh, this is what we're charged to do at this point in the legislative calendar. We're charged to bring it home. And so there has to be time and we have to get it done. And um, I I trust that our colleagues will do that. I myself am on a conference committee. I was appointed for the Cannabis Conference Committee. And, you know, that work is arduous and there isn't any other way forward but to get it done. Um, so I trust that my colleagues will get this done. Um, 
and there there are numbers of differences. However, the core provisions are the same. We want to protect the House and Senate want to protect uh, a woman's right to choose here in the Commonwealth, and we both want to expand access, um, and we both want to make sure to break down barriers to that access, and we want to protect people coming to the Commonwealth seeking care. Um, should we be a safe haven for them? So there's numbers of ways that we're the same. There are places that we are different. Uh, here's another. Here's one place that we're different. Uh, the Senate passed um, something called medication abortion on college campuses. That was a bill um, I worked on. I was proud to work on in the Senate um, in the in the Public Health Committee, Senate Committee Joint Committee on Public Health. Um, Senator Jason Lewis filed that as an amendment to the Senate bill, and it passed. And it will enshrine in all public colleges and universities access to medication abortion. Um, that's a bill that was also filed in the House by Rep. Sabadosa. Let, let me ask you this. Uh, that bill. I, Senator Comerford, let me ask you this. Uh, the overwhelming percentage of abortions that are performed are performed early. Um, there are a very small percentage, very small percentage, that are uh, so-called later-term abortions. Um, and yet, as I understand it from local media coverage this over this past weekend, there is a difference between the House and the Senate bill in that regard. In some ways, uh, it's it's a uh, uh, it's a flashpoint, but it's all. And although it is a tiny, tiny percentage of abortions performed. It is an issue that uh, uh, is of uh, is of concern, and it's a difference between the bills that has to be reconciled. Can you help us understand? Yep. Sure. Yeah. Well, but just to, just so you know, medication abortion is another difference uh, between the two bills. Um, so there are numbers of similarities and numbers of differences. So with regard to um, late so-called late-term abortions, and you're right that the vast majority of abortions performed are performed early. Um, so with regard to late-term abortions, what the Senate did, the Senate and the House are both trying to solve for um, ensuring access to later-term abortions. The Senate's way of doing it was to pass what I talked about, which was Amendment Number 29. And Amendment Number 29 um, went right back to, to what was called 12N in the Roe Act, which stipulated the provisions for so-called late-term abortions. And so we went back and we solidified that. Um, and so, again, you see the House, you see the Senate doing, reaffirming um, this. The House added a word. Um, they added a word, severe. So they added a word, and, you, you know, really House members should speak to this because I'm not in the House, so I don't exactly know um, their good thinking there. But, again, they expanded um, Section 12N, essentially, to do fatal or severe fetal anomalies. The Senate, um, the Senate and our own deliberations around that didn't use the word severe, but we did double down on, on enshrining a right to late-term abortions. And so this is the part of the work of the conference committee is to really talk to each other about the different approaches and find the approach that both chambers um, can be okay with. And again, that work is being going to be led by really terrific people um, who know this very, very well. 
Um, and I have all faith that they're going to get it done. Any view on whether Governor Baker is going to sign the bill? And if he doesn't, if there are sufficient votes in both the House and the Senate to over uh, overrule his veto? Um, I, I think the governor has signaled that he is not interested in the word severe. Um, that is something that he has signaled. That was one of the reasons the Senate has um, decided on a different approach to enshrine and double down on that commitment and try to clarify, if needed, the intention of Roe. Um, so I think, you know, he's made it pretty clear that's not a word he feels comfortable with. Um, and so I think it's going to depend, his signature is going to depend a lot on what, on what that last, um, the final bill looks like, actually. So, yes, I believe we'd have enough votes to override. You'll know, Bill, and you'll just remember that we have to do all of this work by July 20, July 31st. So if we don't get that to him um, by July 21st, so 10 days, he'll have 10 days to, you know, to work on that. We run the risk of running out of time and not being able to override. So, you know, it's a pretty acute timeline, which we all have to get behind. Um, and we have to find a bill compromise that both chambers can live with in short order so that the governor has no time to run out the clock. We are speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford, who, as you can hear, is in her car on her way to Boston. We're going to find out what she is doing today right after this break. This is Bill Newman, WHMB. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This Sunday, the CoFest Story Slam is finally back. All stories will be short, first person, true, and on our season theme of stepping up and stepping back. Got a story about a transition, filling a gap, meeting a crisis, a retirement? Then this might be the perfect opportunity for you. There's room for all kinds of stories. It's a fun and celebratory event. While many of the slots are already full, we'll save some for last minute signups. Too many contestants? We'll audition first lines and let the audience decide. It's this Sunday at 8 in our new home on the Hampshire College campus. It'll sell out, so reserve now. And don't forget our other show this weekend, Sandglass Theater and Linda Paris Bailey's Flushing, a show for grown-ups with live performers, live music, and puppets. Interested? Visit kofest.com. That's K-O-F-E-S-T dot com. The Co-Festival, where the only certainty is surprise. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. 
You know, Gordy, I was thinking, now that it's just you and me hosting the Cambridge Connection each week, we're sort of like, I don't know, one of those famous radio teams. You know who I mean. You mean like Bonnie and Clyde? We aren't that famous yet. But what we get to share every week with our listeners is expert knowledge from a community of people who are making a difference every day by helping others achieve financial independence and freedom. And that includes your day job as a rock star counselor at Cambridge Credit Counseling. One of the reasons I love being a part of the Cambridge Connection is that we have the opportunity to share real stories of people and organizations that make a difference across all aspects of financial wellness. And we also get to share stories of real people with real financial problems and offer possible options they can follow to turn a negative financial situation into a positive one because everyone's situation is different. So folks, join myself, Tina Marie, and our special guests and experts each and every week right here on The Cambridge Connection on WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Senator Joe Comerford, who is on her way into Boston in her car at the moment because she has a vote. There's a vote in today on the budget, an up or down vote coming out of conference. Is that right, Senator? That is correct. The budget came out. We're late. So I owe an explanation about that. The conference committee was supposed to deliver a budget um, in time for the fiscal year to start, and that's July, 30, July 1st for us in the legislature, different from the federal, which starts on October 1st. Uh, so we're late on this, but it's a good budget. I'll have to say so. I think it's worth the wait. Many of our district's priorities are in this budget, I'm really proud to say. Um, so we're going to go look at it today, talk about it in caucus, and then vote on it. I'm going to vote yes um, after reading the budget last night. I feel like it's a very good blueprint. We're also seeing for the first time the economic development bond bill. Um, that will also have lots of spending for our district. And then I'm going to fight for some earmarks on top of that to bring home. Um, okay. Earmarks. Uh, a word that is no longer sort of in the... Uh, 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 discard bin of our lexicon. What what uh, special uh, bills and uh, are you looking for for the district? Well, um, in the budget, there are a couple of things that we were just talking about on break that I filed and won in the budget, including twenty million dollars additional funding for Community Preservation Act um, funding, and that is really important in our district. Uh, many, many communities use CPA. Uh, they, you know, it's that program where um, it's dedicated to things like open space preservation, historic preservation, um, recreation, housing. So I'm, I'm really very pleased um, that we were able to hike that up by 20 million. We also put in money for um, social work first crisis response. And here I want to tip my hat bill to the ACLU um, and your colleague Javier, who was helped me be the mastermind behind that and, and fight for and do advocacy around keeping that funding and the stipulation, the policy stipulations. Um, so that's also in the budget. And there's a number of other priorities for our district. In the economic development bond bill, um, I'm looking for money for places like Orange uh, that suffered that intense fire, as you know. Uh, Orange has a landlord who's delinquent, um, and the building was subject to 
arson, but of course it's not really arson when it's teenagers, young young ones um, who broke into the building. Um, thank God no one was hurt or killed, uh, but the orange is left with millions of dollars in debt. So I'm working with Rep Whips, Susanna Whips, to help Orange. Um, and I'm also looking to help other communities in the district on one-time capital need or one-time uh, programmatic need funding. Uh, so that's something my team and I are digging in on. Um, you'll also remember Smith Vocational had a fire and lost part of a roof. So things like that are the kind of funding that an, uh, an economic development bond bill, which is going to use some of the ARPA money, um, are ripe for. Let me ask you this. I understand that in addition to going to Boston to vote on the budget, you uh, well, you have something in your car. Uh, what's, in, what's, what's in your car with you today? Well, I am in the car with about 300 ear of Galunka corn. Galunka is a farm in Waitley. It's where my family goes for corn in the summer. And um, when I first came to when I first came to the legislature, I really thought that one of the things I wanted to do was make sure that Western Mass was always present in the minds and the hearts of my great colleagues in Boston. And so um, I make a, a point of bringing in produce or goods from the district. I was saying to you earlier during break that during budget season, I often turn to Atkins Cider Donuts uh, and bring dozens of them into the state house. And then, you know, during farming season, because we are so rich in farms, um, I like to bring in produce. And so uh, it's lovely to be able to do that again now that we're open for business um, after the pandemic. Um, and so I have brought in these corn, these ear of corn, which I, you know are going to go to the staff of uh, Senate President and Senate Ways and Means and Senate Council and the court officers, the guards, Senate Council. You know, these are people who work on behalf of our district every day supporting me and my team. So we're going to say thank you with some good, sweet Western Mass corn. And, and I know, Senator, that you you, you work uh, very much uh, in a cooperative and collegial way. So I have this crucial question to ask you. How are you going to get 300 years of corn from your car to the statehouse? <laughs> well, I saw the know, bags my, online. They're big. My, they are so big, Monty. I, had, <laughs> I got up so early this morning because I thought, oh, my God, I have to, like, get my workout clothes on. Uh, so my wife, Anne, God bless her, picked them up last night. I had to go to an event, um, and uh, I hauled them into my car this morning. I, my great colleague, Jared, thank God he's young. He's our chief of staff, and he is um, ready with a dolly. I'm in the statehouse garage right now, so he's ready with a dolly. We're going to load him up, um, and then we're going to figure out how to drag him around to offices. But this is the kind of stuff we do because we want to make sure that our colleagues understand that we're grateful for their service on behalf of Western Massachusetts. And if we can say thank you with donuts and corn um, and open their minds and hearts uh, so that they're focused on us, well, let's do it. Senator, I want to ask you one more substantive question before we go, um, and that is about this transportation bill and the transportation bond bill. There's been a lot of coverage here in the district about uh, West East, East West Rail, and uh, as well as other uh, transportation issues. Where does the transportation bond bill stand? What's in it, and is it going to be a game changer here in our district? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked about this. So the Senate and the House have both passed versions of the transportation bond, and great House members and great Senate colleagues, we worked on two 
distinct rail-focused provisions. Um, one was on the money uh, that we wanted to earmark within the bond, and one was on this uh, provision to stand up a commission that would have a laser-sharp, um, rapid process to deliver legislation between, you know, say, September and December of this year to be filed to set up a rail authority uh, to manage the projects in Western Mass that would really be the the body that would um, help the trains, if you will, run on time. Uh, so uh, we, both branches did this, both chambers did this. Um, the language is very similar, not completely, uh, but right before I was talking to you, I was talking to great House members, thinking about how we come together once again as a delegation, which we're doing very frequently, very regularly, to reconcile the differences and send a letter to the conference committee to make it really easy um, for them to get the version that the Western Mass delegation thinks is the best. It's, it's very exciting, Bill. It's, um, you know, there have been so, so many generations of, of legislators, both at the federal and the state level, who have chipped away to get to this point. And now we are really at the precipice of a generational opportunity. Um, and I love the way we're doing it. We're doing it as a complete team. So the House is as important as the Senate and vice versa. Uh, and every member is important. And we're going to get this done. This group of people will get a rail authority done and stood up and funded. Um, and we will, you know, begin to uh, bring the body together that's going to help everything from east-west via Pittsfield to the Berkshire Flyer, which just started to run to the North-South Valley Flyer, you know, making that go from a pilot to um, enshrined service, and then the northern tier uh, that will come from Albany through North Adams into Greenfield and Orange and then out to Fitchburg. All of these things are possible for us as a region if we stick together with our people. Last question, because I think a lot of people have this in their mind. East-West Rail, where would the tracks be? Do we know? Sure, yeah. I mean, so the east-west via the northern tier, we already know, because those tracks are down and freight is moving. Uh, they would have to be repaired in a couple of places, maybe double-tracked to pick up some speed. Um, but that's actually pretty easy to know. For east-west via Springfield, Pittsfield and Springfield, um, some tracks are down along, you know, because, again, freight is moving. Uh, but same thing there. There will have to be likely land-taking. Um, and rights of way secured to to make track trackage that will support a higher speed and straighter routes into Boston. Okay, we look forward to that. State Senator Joe Comerford, thank you so much for your time with us every month. Thank you for your representation <laughs> and leadership. And well, we look forward to getting some of that corn too. <laughs> oh yeah, don't, don't you guys. All right, goodbye. Thank you, Senator. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Kara Rintala, who faces a first-degree murder charge in connection with the 2010 death of her wife Anna Maria Cochran Rintala at their home in Granby, will face another trial this September. The trial, which would be the fourth one for Rintala, is expected to last between three and four weeks. Rintala was indicted for first-degree murder by a Hampshire grand jury in 2011. Both the first and second trials resulted in mistrials. She was then convicted by a jury in 2016. 
the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court overturned the conviction, ruling that the trial judge had erred by allowing expert testimony regarding paint drying. Police are searching for a Springfield man who assaulted a woman in Charlemont and fled the scene. The search by Charlemont Police and the Massachusetts State Police began last night around 6 p.m. Officials say the suspect is associated with the victim and known to the police. The state police brought in air wing support that assisted in the search until 8 p.m. last night. The suspect has not yet been found. An East Hampton firefighter is facing multiple charges after installing hidden cameras in the woman's locker room at the fire station. Nicholas Tillman of Westfield confessed to having installed the cameras after female co-workers found them last week. East Hampton police installed cameras of their own and caught Tillman checking the cameras soon after. He was arrested and arraigned last week on charges of secret sexual surveillance and unlawful secret recording. For today, it'll be cloudy and humid with showers and thunderstorms, highs 78 to 82. Tonight, showers and thunderstorms mainly this evening, overnight lows 66 to 70. And the outlook for Tuesday, sunshine and clouds, hot and humid, slight chance for an afternoon shower or thunderstorm, highs around 90. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Desde el sábado 16 de julio, las personas que experimentan una crisis de salud mental tienen una nueva forma de buscar ayuda en los Estados Unidos. Simplemente pueden llamar o enviar un mensaje de texto a los números 988. Siguiendo el modelo del 911, el nuevo número 988, que es la línea de crisis y suicidio de tres dígitos, está diseñado para ser un número memorable y rápido que conecta a las personas con tendencias suicidas o en cualquier otra crisis de salud mental con un profesional de salud mental capacitado. El objetivo principal del nuevo número es facilitar que las personas soliciten ayuda. Los legisladores y los defensores de la salud mental también ven este lanzamiento como una oportunidad para transformar el sistema de de atención de la salud mental y hacer que la atención sea fácilmente accesible en todo Estados Unidos. La administración Biden ha invertido más de 400 millones de dólares en reforzar los centros de crisis y otros servicios de salud mental para respaldar el sistema 988. El objetivo del esfuerzo detrás del 988 es, en última instancia, reducir confrontaciones con las fuerzas del orden público y conectar a las personas en crisis para que ayuden de inmediato. La línea de vida 988 conectará a las personas con la red existente de más de 200 centros locales de llamadas de crisis en todo el país. El número de 10 dígitos de la Línea Nacional de Prevención del Suicidio permanecerá activo, pero las llamadas se desviarán al 988. En otras informaciones, el alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, anunció que durante esta semana continuarán los trabajos de pavimentación y asfaltado en diferentes calles del sur de Holyoke. Este lunes se pavimentará Clemente Street desde Sargent hasta Hamilton, South Bridge desde Sargent hasta Hamilton y South East desde Clemente hasta Hamilton. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. One of the races that will be decided, I think, as a practical matter in the Democratic primary the day after Labor Day, although there is, of course, early voting and... I just received my invitation to request a ballot by mail, so maybe, maybe the terrible day of having an election the day after Labor Day, maybe it will not be so 
so detrimental to the democratic process uh, this time. We have with us uh, one of the candidates for governor's council. The governor's council is that body, a constitutionally based body in Massachusetts that uh, has a number of very important uh, uh, roles in our, in our government. There are four candidates who are running for the 8th District, which is where we are. The 8th District encompasses all the four western counties and a bit of Worcester County. The four candidates are Jeff Morneau, Sean Allen, and Michael Fenton, and Tara Jacobs. And we have with us today Tara Jacobs. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. So for those of our listeners who are saying, okay, I've kind of sort of heard a little about the governor's council race, um, why don't you explain to our listeners, if you would please, what the governor's council is, what it does, and then, second question, why do you want to be on this body? Sure. First, just Bill, thank you so much for the time and for your for your audience's attention to the governor's council race. Um, it's funny you start off with that question because I always have to start off uh, making sure the person I'm talking to has heard of governor's council, and often the answer is no. So it becomes first uh, a practice in educating on what the governor's council is and why it's important and then getting to talk about myself. So this this follows um, what is very much the trend for this particular position. So the Governor's Council um, is a a group that was created in the Constitution of of Massachusetts long, long ago, but um, continues to do very important work uh, with the governor and the lieutenant governor, who is their ex officio chair, The work they do encompasses so many important things, Um, probably the number one being they confirm all of the judges across the state from lawyers um, who wish to become a a judge and start at the first rung all the way up to our Supreme Judicial Court. Um, As we know, judges matter so much. It's so important, um, that work that they do. The other things they do include um, lots of other equally important things, like um, they select the people who serve us on our parole board. They they also uh, confirm clerk magistrates. They also, um, if there's a pardon or a commutation that comes before the governor, it's actually the governor's council who weighs in on that decision and either gives their consent or not to that process. Um, and then lots of other things that are uh, judicial-related um, executive branch appointment work, um, and even down to the level of if the governor wishes to raise salaries or have other what they call draws on the treasury, um, it's the governor's council who will give advice and consent in that as well. So that's what they do. I think it's so important because things like judges and who's on our parole board are such crucial underpinnings of the foundation of our society. They impact, you know, those decisions impact our communities and and our state. I think given what's happening right now in, in the nation, it becomes more evident than ever how important who our judges are, um, is. And I think it's fascinating that this is the group that um, is responsible for uh, the judiciary bench, and yet so few people have ever heard of them. Um, so as to your second part of your question as to why I uh, am running and, and want to be on the governor's council, um, 
it really is about two major things for me. I see the work the Governor's Council does as so impactful and such an opportunity to affect um, positive change for our communities and, and our Commonwealth to come from a standpoint of focusing on equity-oriented um, motivation for all of Western Massachusetts, um, where, you know, we are currently, after COVID, have a backlog in our judiciary. Um, it just speaks to, we have so many needs in Western Massachusetts, and this is one where I could affect positive change by being on that council. The second reason I'm, I'm so motivated beyond the important work that the Governor's Council does where I think I can, I can make a difference, um, is the opportunity to be an advocate for Western Massachusetts, for all of our communities, our needs. The, you know, the Governor's Council literally is in the Governor's, their chamber is in the Governor's suite right next to the Governor's office, work um, regularly with the Governor and the Lieutenant Governor, and Every Wednesday, they're in the state house, surrounded by the legislative body. The opportunity to amplify the voice of an underrepresented part of our state, Western Massachusetts, in in that arena, um, I think just offers such an amazing opportunity to, um, you know, advocate for our needs, advocate advocate for each of our communities and and the challenges and concerns they face. Um, and to do it on a consistent and persistent basis. So, Tara um, Jacobs, let me interrupt because I really want to get to this point. What, what, sure. are, what, what are you telling voters or, or listeners of are your qualifications for this position? Sure. So I am definitely uh, the unique candidate in this particular race at this particular moment in that I am the only woman in the race. I'm the only non-lawyer in, in the race for the Democratic primary. And, um, and I also, I live in Berkshire County, um, which is another, which of these things is not like the other um, element. And um, I think all of those things contribute to my bringing a unique perspective to the work of the Governor's Council and doing it from the standpoint of being the voice of the people. Um, 99 plus percent of us are not lawyers and who our judges are and parole board members are impacts us as community members, and um, we deserve to have a voice at that table. In terms of my qualifications, um, I, I, how far back shall I go? But uh, currently, I'll start currently and work backwards. I live in North Adams where I'm in my second term as a school committee member. I am the chair of the trustees at the North Adams Public Library, and I'm the city chair of the North Adams Democratic City Committee. Um, Prior to that, I have served six years on the Berkshire County Commission on the Status of Women, where we affected powerful and impactful um, community solutions. The one I'm most proud of and, and had a big hand in kicking off was our teen pregnancy prevention uh, solution that we initiated uh, on the Commission for the Status of Women and then handed off to our United Way partners. Um, I've also served on our local cultural council and a number of other boards and steering committees and commissions and councils. <laughs> my my goal for the last, since 2006 when we moved to the Berkshires, <clears throat> excuse me, has been to 
work on community solutions, jump in and find solutions that increase equity and access and improve the well-being and the wellness of our, our children, our families, our women, our schools, our libraries. Um, and I see the Governor's Council as a next step in that kind of work that has been such a main motivator for the choices that I've made. Prior to moving to the Berkshires, I had um, a successful advertising career, uh, whereas I was focused on brand strategy and consumer insight. And that um, came out of my educational background um, in social psychology, where understanding people, dynamics, belief systems, and in the world of advertising, how to use that to persuade. And my most um, meaningful experiences in my advertising career led to my current life choices in that I worked on several social cause marketing accounts, um, one being the uh, anti-drug campaign for the ONDCP, where we um, evolved that that long-standing anti-drug campaign into what became the Above the Influence campaign. So I was a lead strategist on that. And prior to that, um, I worked on Truth uh, Anti-Tobacco at Arnold Worldwide in Boston. Um, that was an account funded by the Master Settlement Agreement with Big Tobacco and focused on at-risk youth for tobacco uptake and um, I was a lead strategist, uh, the architect for what is still the strategy they're using today um, back then. And on top of that, some other accounts that were pro bonos and, and nonprofits like United Way and other things. And those particular accounts, because I had many in my portfolio over the years, but those particular accounts were just so meaningful to me. Um, the positive work we were doing, the 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 impact we were having on driving cultural beliefs towards healthier choices um, led to an entire evaluation of what I wanted to do with my life and led to the work I've been doing ever since. And, and again, just to close the circle, I see the Governor's Council as an opportunity to be an incredible lever for positive social change, um, and I want to be at that table driving and promoting those values of social, racial, gender, um, youth, economic, environmental justice, um, kind of a, a buzz thing as in justice for all, but it's, it's pithy, but it's true. I think the Governor's Council gives that opportunity to do work that really has long-lasting impact on our communities and our commonwealth. We're speaking with Tara Jacobs. She is a candidate for the Governor's Council in the 8th District. Uh, as Tara has just told us, uh, and I agree, the most important work of the Governor's Council is to evaluate and to pass on and to confirm nominations for judgeships in all the courts of the Commonwealth. She is the only non-lawyer, uh, as she told us, uh, running for this position. And I want to come back after the break and ask her, how she will evaluate, how she has the experience to evaluate judges um, as a non-lawyer. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. 
This is from Chile, from the winery Bouchon, and it's called Pays Salvaje. It's got like a guy on a ladder in the front. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The ladder is representing how they harvest this wine. So Pais, uh, sometimes referred to as the mission grape because it was planted all over Central and South America by Spanish missionaries. Additionally, it mutated into like a climbing vine. So it climbs up the trees on the backside of the vineyards ah. uh, and they needed ladders that were up to 15 feet tall to harvest it. The País Salvaje, people who like natural wines or low intervention wines, like they do nothing to these things. They're just grown in the backyard um, and they use these giant ladders to, to get yeah, An interesting experience that you probably haven't had with these wild grapes grown tall. If you're in a rut, if uh, you've only been drinking Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio, maybe we've made you branch out. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. This Monday at the Shea, The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. Zach Sherwin, from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Epic Rap Battles of History, bringing his incredible wordplay to a live crossword puzzle on stage at the Shea. A panel of guest comedians will solve this actual crossword puzzle while Zach Sherwin takes us down a rabbit hole of comedy, music, trivia, and wordplay. No crossword expertise needed. The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. With special guest problem solvers, Smith College's Dr. Jennifer Malkowski, the founder of Smith's Video Game Research Lab, Comedy as a Weapon comedian Kim DeShields, and me, Monty Belmonte. The Crossword time. Show with Zach Still Sherwin. Monday night, 7 o'clock, Shea the Theater, Turner's Falls. I'm the Rock Waters. Alexander the Great. I've got no terrible. Bukalai, Krimda, the Kremlin's arriving. 1240 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. There are farm fresh eggs just around the corner and beef across town. Local food is all around. It's a connection to your community, to the land and the people. There's a handy guide to the farm fresh food all around you, the local hero guide on the CISA website. You never know how close you are to something good for dinner tonight, something harvested just this morning. CISA's local hero guide, your guide to farm fresh food, on the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Tara Jacobs, who is a member of the School Committee North Adams and a candidate for the Democratic nomination for Governor's Council. Governor's Council is that body, a constitutional body in Massachusetts that passes on and makes the final determination of approval or not of judgeships and clerkships, the parole board, the Department of Industrial Accidents, the appellate tax board, uh, uh, crucial positions. Um, all of the other candidates, Tara, are, are lawyers, and they, they, in fact, use as part of their, an important part of their campaigns, I know judges, I evaluate judges, I evaluate judges, I know lawyers, I've been in the system, I know it, uh, and that's the experience that I bring to this right. body. That's why I will be a good governor's counselor. And you say, well, I'm not a lawyer, and that's a big plus. Um, and yep. I'd appreciate your explaining how you would evaluate lawyers as possible judges, uh, not, not having been a lawyer and not having been in the system? Sure. Well, um, I appreciate the question. I think it is sort of the highlight of, of my point of difference and something I am um, proud of and, and um, pushing because, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, more than 800,000 of us in this district are not lawyers and 
um, law- and judges have to work with lawyers, but also the community that they are um, judging and the people who uh, represent victims who are often not lawyers and the victims and defendants themselves who are often not lawyers. So um, I think it is a it's an elected position for which being a lawyer is not um, a requirement. And there are two current um, governor's council members who are not lawyers. And I think while this work is certainly very legally focused, um, it doesn't require a law degree to be able to read the packet and do deep dive interviews on the candidates to assess their qualifications, but to me, even more important, their character and their belief systems and their values and their biases. Um, I come from a long, uh, long experience in um, recruiting and hiring, first on a corporate level as a hiring manager. Um, and often I would be hiring for my particular uh, specialty and area of expertise, but we always did team hiring and I would just as often be hiring for roles that were not in my wheelhouse and yet able to evaluate a candidate and their and their experience and, and their fit in an advertising world. Um, more recently, as a school committee member and a trustee um, at the library, I've been um, highly involved in recruiting roles for the school district, the administration, the library director. Um, I'm not a librarian and I'm not an educator, but I am able to assess the experience and qualifications and, again, the caliber, the quality, the the um, the values of a candidate. And I think those skills in recruiting um, translate to this work. Um, and that's not to in any way take anything away from lawyers in their areas of expertise, but they tend to specialize as well. And so I think a lawyer who is evaluating um, another lawyer from a different field, um, they're not going to know every aspect either um, in terms of the, the legal aspect. But um, at the same time, I'm a lifelong learner, and uh, I am excited by learning new things and taking on new information. As a school committee member, it was a rapid uptake of all things um, educational law and budgeting and um, and so on. So um, I see this as a similar thing where I, I know there will be a lot to learn stepping into the role, but I honestly believe that to be the case for the three lawyers as well. You could attend every governor's council meeting and still not know behind the curtain all the work that is going on to do the work they do. You mentioned there are other governor's counselors who are not necessarily lawyers, but I I know one was a chief of police. I mean, he was in the system, has been in the system for 30 years. Um, And are you really saying that being in the system, knowing uh, how judges operate and having been in front of judges, dozens, maybe Maybe many, many dozens of them over the years. I'm sorry. That's okay. We really like dogs. Um, um, that that's not a big advantage in terms of being able to evaluate a candidate who would have a lifetime appointment in the community or on the appeals court or uh, in the district court or the clerk's office. I mean, 
Well, this is what I will say to that. Uh, it, oh, oh, oh. Well, it may be an advantage, but it's not a requirement, and it doesn't – I believe my advantage is that I am not inside baseball in the legal world. I don't have um, – I don't owe any favors to anyone, and no, I don't have any friends that I'm intending to appoint to be judge. So I am truly an outsider. I'm truly nonpolitical in what is the best choice for our communities. And I think that is very much a strength. Um, I'm not entirely sure who you're referring to, but Eileen Duff, I think, is a very um, effective member of the Governor's Council and is not a lawyer. And similar to her, um, I, I talked to her for a little while and fabulous conversation. Um, she had highlighted originally that oh, that she writes policy. And frankly, so do I. In both my role as school committee member and trustee, I write law that governs those. Oh. <laughs> We're going to have to leave it there. We have, yep. been, we have been speaking with Tara Jacobs. She is a candidate for the Governor's Council of the Democratic nomination for Governor's Council in the 8th District. Thank you so much for your Thanks time your today. Time. Really I appreciate, appreciate it. it. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying for federal food assistance. They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's time.